look good. I don't have my glasses on, but you look good. I notice I look good without my glasses, too. Take them off and stand in front of the mirror. Use your imagination. So we are in Ephesians chapter 4. We've been working our way through. We're finishing up. We're just covering the first four chapters of Ephesians because I did a verse-by-verse study of chapters 5 and 6 and just came up to felt that we needed to talk about 5 and 6, the armor of the Lord. There was a season that we needed to put it on. Hope you remember that uh, the armor is for every day. Amen. You're not going out without your armor, are you? All right. There's a battle out there for sure. We need our spiritual armor. So if you didn't hear those messages, you can find them probably online, Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. But we're in chapter 4 tonight. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11, and then we're going to unpack what's in there and enjoy it together. Father, we thank you tonight for this time together. I thank you for these people who love you and come out in the middle of the week, Lord, to hear your word and to worship and to fellowship, to do all the things that you've asked us to do as brothers and sisters. Father, refresh us tonight. Father, we pray for those that want to be here and couldn't be here, Lord God, refresh them tonight. God, they've worked hard all day and they're, they're tired, Lord, but I just pray by the Holy Spirit you would breathe life into them and uh, just put joy in their hearts, Father. As we come to the Word tonight, Holy Spirit, open it up to us. Let us enjoy each mouthful of it tonight. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Word of God's a good meal, amen? It's nothing like fresh bread. If you ever had fresh bread right out of the oven, I mean, you cut it and throw butter on it and it just melts like magic. Sometimes after you have some fresh bread, when you open a loaf and you pull out one of those pieces and you're like, what am I doing? Not even worth it, spit it out. But here's the fresh bread tonight, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive the captives and gave gifts to people. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended in the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Let's just stop right there because there's a whole bunch in there. In fact, verse 11 uh, that talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. I'm going to spend a session on each one of those offices, and we're going to understand them and how they relate to the body of Christ. But let's go back to verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given. Say grace. Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So this is great news tonight. We've been given grace. Have you ever just wished life would give you a break? Maybe you've said to someone, give me a break. Or maybe you mutter to yourself on the way to work, just give me a break. I need a break. And sometimes you get a break and sometimes you don't. But I want to tell you on a large scale, in eternity, in a spiritual dimension, all of us have been given an awesome break. And that break is grace. Amen. And without grace, none of us would make it into eternity that we'd want to be in. So the great news is that we've been given grace from God. Look what it says. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So the grace that we received 
is a two-part blessing according to verse 7, if you read it carefully. Number one, it's grace that's been given to us as individuals. Many people approach God from a distance, and they want to think everything about God was just a blanket thing. Well, he died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. Yeah, but he died for me and you. Oh, he said he gave grace to men, but he gave grace to Rick Leonardi, and he gave grace to you. You see, when you go from this corporate, cosmic, large-scale view down to a personal level, all of a sudden that grace comes alive. Because you know what? Without grace, you and I are lost, but individually he gave grace to us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So the two-part blessing of his grace is that, number one, it's given to us individually. Now, what is grace? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Here's a real simple definition. Grace is unmerited favor. The fact that we received grace from God means he's freely given us something we desperately needed but could never earn, deserve, or buy. That's grace. Unmerited favor. Unmerited is a fancy word for saying you didn't deserve it. Unmerited sounds nice, doesn't it? Undeserving is just as accurate, but you know, unmerited favor. We didn't deserve what God gave us. That's what makes it grace. If we deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. It would be just recompense for what we did or what we earned or how we behaved or if if we followed the rules or not, amen? You see, that's how religion is. Follow the rules, earn your way, do your works, and God will, you know, grade on a curve and hopefully you'll slip into heaven. Religion. Where do they come up with this stuff? People are waiting to meet St. Peter at the gate. He's not at the gate. They think they're going to have to answer a couple questions or be better than the guy behind them or the guy in front of them in line. But that's not grace. Grace is unmerited favor. We desperately needed it, but we couldn't earn it. We couldn't deserve it. We couldn't be good enough. We couldn't try hard enough. We couldn't live long enough to get it right. So God said, I'll do it for you. I'll give you my very best. His name is Jesus Christ. He's my only begotten son, and he's going to die in your place. Amen? Come on, this is the gospel. Unmerited favor, amen? Now, thank God he didn't just pour out a blanket measure of grace and everybody run to it like a puddle and drink out of it. No, he he gave it on an individual basis. It's not just a blanket covering over all mankind. It's unique, specific, individual grace. Grace with your name on it. Are you getting this? I want you to get this. We're personalizing it tonight. Here's the measure of grace that he poured out on Rick. He said, I'm going to pour my grace out for him. And I I want you to think of it almost like a gift. And when you open it up, it's the perfect gift. And it's got all the parts and it comes with batteries. And it's not broken out of the box and it's got everything you need. And here's my grace to Rick. It's going to make him acceptable to me, the father says, by the blood of my son, Jesus. It's going to cover all his sins, all his iniquities, all of his past, and it's going to secure his future. Come on. It will release him from the burden of doing spiritual works in an attempt to justify himself before me. Oh, I want to keep unpacking this thing. I like it. It will transform Rick from a sinner into a saint, from a spiritual orphan into one of my very own children. Amen? That's the grace of God. And it was poured out to us in Jesus Christ as a gift. And it's an individual, unique gift that's the perfect gift for me and the perfect gift for you. The second part of 
the grace here that's described in verse 7 is this. It's the exact amount of grace we need to use our gifts for the glory of God. Hey, how come you got more grace than me? You did all those things. You were bad. You were a sinner. You were in jail. You did this and that and this and that. Look at all the grace you got. See, we get the right amount of grace for us. What determines the amount of grace we need? The, the giftings that he gave us because we're going to need grace to use the giftings that he gave us. Did you see that in there? If you read the text carefully, if you blast right through it, you miss it. But it says, what, the grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Mm, individual gifts. My gift's different than your gift. My measure of grace is different than your measure of grace, amen? What I got to put up with may not be what you got to put up with. We all got to put up with something. How do you know that? Because he all said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That means we all got to put up with something. So don't look at somebody else's cross or somebody else's gift or somebody else's call and think, I want that. No, just stick with what you got, Amen. Because the grace he gave you is sufficient for that burden, for that call, for that anointing, for that gift to function in a way that it'll bring glory to God. So we've been given it according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, have you ever looked at someone going through hardship or going through just a massive trial or affliction, maybe disease or sickness, cancer, death, a loss? Have you ever looked at someone going through that and, and look at them and go, I don't know how you're, how you're doing it. Have you ever looked at someone and they're, you know, they should be devastated and destroyed, but yet the peace of God that passes all understanding is upon them, and it doesn't even make sense. And you say, well, how in the world are you doing it? It's the grace of God. You know, I look past, I look in my past at how, what it take, took for me to get from a young man saved at 14 to here today, and I look at all of what I've been through, and I see the grace of God, and you know what? I don't know how I did it either. Did you ever look back at your past and go, how do we make it through that? Amen. My wife and I have been through some stuff. You know, ministry is easy. There's no demands. There's, the enemy leaves you alone. The devil gives up on you. It's just easy. But we look back and we're like, how do we survive that? We both look at each other. You think we could do it again? No, I don't think we could do it again. I don't know. I would have killed that person for sure. But the grace was there for you in that moment to survive that situation, to, to go through it. Amen. That's the grace of God, and it's sufficient. It's given out individually, and it, it matches up with the, with the gift we've been given and the call we've been given, and it's exactly enough to allow us to use our gift for the glory of God. How did you make it this far? I don't know. How did you make it this far? I don't know. It's the grace of God. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. It's inexplicable. That's why it's grace. It's unmerited favor. It's beyond human comprehension, but God gives it to us. We should never forget for a second that the grace the Father extends to us has been bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. You see, this is just not, grace isn't just magic fairy dust that floats down from heaven that makes everything all right. Jesus paid for it with his life on the cross with every drop of his blood. So it's not cheap grace, it's expensive grace. So we should be careful how we use the grace of God in our life. Well, you know, I got grace and all things are lawful to me and, you know, I'm saved and God forgives any sin I do, so I'm just gonna live recklessly and wild and push the envelope and see what happens. Paul said, God forbid, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Should I live like a wild man, Paul? Absolutely not. God forbid. 
See, that grace that God pours out on us is meant for us to use our gifts to glorify him, to make us look more like Jesus, but it's also a restrainer in our lives. Amen? It's to restrain us. If you, if you use grace as a license to sin, you don't understand grace. Grace should restrain us. Oh, I've been given so much. I've been forgiven so much. I've been given so many chances. Come on, Wednesday night. Amen? So I won't dare cross the line or push the envelope or see what I could get away with. Oh, you're all trying to look holy tonight. We don't know what you're talking about, Pastor. Well, verse 8 continues here. It says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, say ascended, that's to go up. When he ascended on high, he led captive the captives. Look at that, captive. He led captive the captives, and he gave gifts to people. Let's unpack this tonight. Here Paul mentions the ascension of Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus was done doing all he had to do, he endured the cross, he was in the tomb a short time, he was, you know, raised up and resurrected three days there, he took care of business, we're going to talk about that, but eventually he ascended into heaven. And that's the ascension of Jesus Christ. Jesus was not in the tomb. It couldn't hold him. His bones aren't there. His body's not there. No, he's alive, amen? And when he was done with his mission and it was complete, he returned to the Father in heaven. He ascended. Simple. Now, some of us, we've studied the book of Matthew or Acts in here, and we've seen them do like, a, you know, the ascension of Jesus when he's talking to his disciples, and the special effects weren't very special, but I can never forget him just kind of talking to them, and he starts floating away, and they're all, oh, and it's real bad. He floats away, and then he goes behind a cloud, and then the angels show up and go, what are you guys looking at? But that's the ascension. That's Jesus going up into heaven and, and the angel saying the same way he left is the same way he's going to come. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back first for his church with a shout. He's going to collect his church up and take it with him. Then he's going to come back bodily and appear on the earth for the millennial reign. But Jesus is coming back. His ascension was the way he left, and the angel talks about him coming back. So understand, he left, and he, and he went up there, and this is a mention of that. This is solid theology here for us to hook on to. When Paul mentions the ascension, it's vitally important that we understand this doctrine uh, because if Jesus isn't risen, then sin is not overcome, and we're still lost. So the fact that he's risen and he ascended is an important thing for us to understand. The fact that Jesus is alive and rose bodily from the grave, he beat death, he, he, he deals with hell. We're going to talk about that in a second. But the grave couldn't hold him, and the fact that he's alive and there was enough eyewitnesses to his resurrection that you could actually prove it in a court of law that his people would rather be killed uh, by a horrible martyr's death than to deny that he rose again. You realize that? This is what differentiates Christianity from every other religious system, amen? And Christianity isn't a religious system. It's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But I'm talking about world religions. Well, no other religious figure ever claimed they would rise from the dead. Jesus told his disciples he would do it repeatedly. He's either a liar or he's Lord, amen? No other religious figure had enough eyewitnesses to prove it in a court of law. So many people saw him, conversed with him. Even the historians of the day who were not Christians or believers testified to the fact that Jesus was alive and appeared to people before he was taken away. 
This is more than just a rumor that people saw him, hundreds of people. None of the followers of the faith would rather die a horrible martyr's death at the hands of men rather than deny the fact that Jesus had risen from the grave. So these are things about the ascension, the resurrection, that differentiate Christianity from every other religion. It's not just a religion among religions like some people like to make it be. And this is not just a book, a collection of thoughts written by men. When Jesus ascended, this text is informing us that he led a specific group of people who had tasted of death out from their current location into heaven. Look what it says. When he ascended on high, he led, the cap- he led captive the captives. Who were the captives? Let's talk about that. The text calls them captives. He led captive, meaning he gathered all, all up to himself and he led these captives out. Who were the captives? These were the righteous dead, the Old Testament saints who had died in faith looking forward to the cross. Understand, Moses, Abraham, Aaron, Jacob, all of these guys that had a relationship with God, the Jewish people, the patriarchs, the, you know, the pillars of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of them died before the cross. So they couldn't be saved and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. The Old Testament provision through the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic law covenant was only to put a covering on sin. So when they died, they couldn't go into the presence of God. So where did they go? They went to a place just outside of Hades called Abraham's bosom. And they were captive there, not a place of torment, but a place of holding. And they waited for Jesus to complete the work on the cross that they looked forward to so that when it was done, he could lead them from that place into the presence of his father. So he led captive the captives. And that's who these captives are. They were held in a place called Abraham's bosom. Luke 16, 22, if you're taking notes tonight, describes Abraham's bosom as a parable from that uh, situation is told. But Luke 16, 22 describes the place. Now, Abraham's bosom was a holding place. It was just outside of Hades or hell. How do we know that? Because in the story, in the parable, uh, the father Abraham is in uh, Abraham's bosom and he can see what's going on in hell and there's someone trying to communicate back and forth, but there's a division there. So if you look at Luke 16, 22, you get a feel for what I'm describing here, but it wasn't a place of torment. It was a holding place. It was just outside of Hades. It's where the righteous dead awaited the completion of Jesus's sacrifice on Calvary. They died in faith looking forward to the cross. And when the cross was completed, they were liberated from that place because they died in faith. Now, those liberated souls that were waiting were captivated by Jesus. He gathered them all up and he triumphantly led them into the presence of his father in heaven. Some sort of first fruits victory parade for Jesus. Amen. Before anybody, you know, the thief on the cross got saved. You got, you got some people getting saved here, but pretty much the first group to taste of, you know, this liberation from sin and this forgiveness that comes through the finished work of the cross was that group of captives. So, That's what's being described here. The last chunk of verse 8 talks about the giving of gifts to people. Look what it says here. He led captive the captives, and he gave gifts to people. Say gifts. Who likes gifts? Who's lying? 
either like gifts, you like to give gifts, or both, amen? Gifts are awesome. When someone thinks of you and gives you a gift that you really enjoy, you know, not like socks or a tie, a gift that you... I don't know anybody who likes socks and ties. Socks. He, he likes socks? All right. I stand corrected. Ties are of the devil. I guess you could like socks. But. So he gave gifts to people. Now, let's look at the gifts here. Obviously, uh, there's some gifts that he gave to those people he just liberated, but we're going to look at these gifts from four different angles And the first is this. He gave the gift of salvation to all those who died in faith looking forward towards the cross. Now think about that. What a gift that was. They were righteous. They looked forward to the cross. They they accomplished the will of God in their time. They kept the Abrahamic covenant. They kept the Mosaic law covenant as best as it could be. And God counted their faith as righteousness for them. So Jesus gives them this gift of salvation and liberates them. First thing I'm going to do after I'm resurrected, I'm going to liberate those guys who were faithful to establish the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. So that's a gift. Secondly, it's the gift of access into the presence of God for eternity. Now that became possible. Before the completion of the cross, no one went into the presence of God for eternity. Not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, not David, not any of them. But think about this. When Jesus was done and the veil in the Holy of Holies was torn in two, now we had access to the Father. Now, when we die, our last breath on earth gives way to our first breath in heaven, amen? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Come on, I wish there were some Christians in here tonight. you're, You're pretty quiet. That's awesome. I hope you go to Abraham's bosom for a couple thousand years. They're going to open it back up just because you were quiet while a man of God was preaching. What a gift to be able to die and go right into the presence of God. No going in the dirt, soul, sleep, in the grave. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. (laughs) That's why we shouldn't fear death. Do you hear what I said? Our last breath here gives way to our first breath in heaven. We're going to see Jesus and look into his eyes. Oh, when he's Lord, man, that's, a, that's an exciting thing. Number three, gifts were given to in the individuals who pioneered the faith in their generation. I mentioned the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, all of them. They were given gifts. The Bible talks about the 24 elders that sit around the throne. These guys were rewarded for what they did, how they were faithful in their generation, amen, And you're going to see those patriarchs who have, you know, the rewards and they sit around the throne when we're up there praising God and and they're sitting around the 24 elders there. I believe that 12 are from the New Testament, the 12 apostles, and then you're going to have 12 patriarchs from the Old Testament. There's rewards in heaven, amen? And these guys were gifted for what they had done and how they had been faithful to the call of God in their lives. The, the remaining meaning of the verse here, I, I hit all those precursors, but the main meaning here of the verse is that he pours out gifts specifically on individuals for the works of the ministry in the New Testament. Jesus is alive, he's risen. The church is about to be birthed, amen. So what does he do with the church, this fledgling church that's just a small group of people in a hostile world where the, the, the devil's already trying to destroy them. The, the religious leaders already want to snuff them out. They're already frantic about the fact that Jesus is risen and they can't cover it up. 
So what does God do? He pours out gifts on the body of Christ to equip them for the work of ministry. In, in, in the book of Acts, immediately they receive the Holy Spirit as he comes down upon them and empowers them. Then that transforming power, I want you to see the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Look, the Holy Spirit's not an option. We need the Holy Spirit, amen? We, we can't do anything for the kingdom of God without the Holy Spirit. There's whole churches and denominations that don't want anything to do with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying you got to get weird and do crazy stuff. I'm just saying you and I should be hungry for the move of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen. When the Holy Spirit fell in Acts uh, there, what happened? You had Peter, who had denied Jesus three times, go from that guy, you know, a coward, to, going, to being a pillar in the church filled with the Holy Spirit. He stands up and preaches the first gospel message, and 3,000 people get saved in one day. Woo! He poured out gifts. He gave gifts to the body of Christ. You and I are gifted. Some of you don't believe me. But each of us have gifts. Well, what are they for? They're to bless the body of Christ. And so he gave gifts to men. He equipped us. So, you know, the solid theology of the fact that Jesus went down and uh, he took care of uh, all these situations with the righteous dead there, and he gave gifts to people. Let's explore verses 9 and 10 now. Listen to this. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except he also descended in the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. So Jesus had a little subterranean adventure here. He went into the bowels of the earth. Look what it says there. Uh, he went to the lower parts of the earth. Uh, a lot of scholars and Bible teachers believe that where hell is right now is in the center of the earth. Uh, where, you know, where people who are not saved and don't go into the presence of God into the heavens, instead of going, you know, it's the proverbial, are you going up or down? Well, some of us are going up because of Jesus, and those that don't want Jesus are going down. And the, the text here gives some clues to that, that he went into the lower parts of the earth. Uh, there's a lot we could say about that and study that, but I'll just leave it at that right now. Uh, Jesus could just have ascended into heaven. Did he really have to go into the lower parts of the earth? Well, he did that, uh, you know, to, to fulfill the prophecies and to take care of uh, all the things that the cross had brokered for mankind. But understand that he did descend down there. Now, some people say, well, he didn't really go to hell. Well, he at least went to Abraham's bosom. You know, some people got this idea, Jesus marched into hell and he body slammed the devil and he took... You know, he took the devil's power and keys like, a, you know, one of those wrestling belts and he held it above his head. It's not in the Bible. But he, <laughs> he at least went to Abraham's bosom. Why? Because it said he led captive the captives and he, dis he descended into the lower parts of the earth. So there's some things we don't know about that. Some people have taken creative license so much that we think, you know, well, that's what happened. Well, we're not exactly sure. But as I mentioned, he liberated the Old Testament saints, and he also, while he was down there, let hell know that their dominion had been broken. You see, the, the, the power of darkness was in the power of sin, because sin had dominion. Every one of us who were born, uh, uh, you know, a natural birth inherited sin in our nature. Why? Because it's original sin that was passed to all of us from Adam and Eve. 
When they sin, it got into our spiritual bloodline, and everyone born of a woman is born in original sin. So Jesus shows up, he liberates those captives there, and he lets hell know. Well, did he march in there? Did he take the, you know, did he take the belt? I don't know. But he let them know that their authority and their dominion had been broken. And that's why he has the keys of death, hell, and the grave, because their dominion was broken. He stripped away the authority of the kingdom of darkness. Why? Because he had broken the power of sin. Revelation 1, 17 through 18 says it like this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. That's our Jesus. That's what he was doing those three days. He was liberating captives, and he was crushing the power of the devil. He made a display of him openly, Romans says, triumphing over him in it. Verse 11 lifts, lists the gifts that we just talked about. Uh, it's, these gifts have long been described by Bible teachers as the five-fold ministry gifts. When anyone, when anyone says that, five-fold ministry gifts, this is what they're talking about here. So verse 11 gives us a nice, nice, neat, clean list of these five ministry gifts. It says, he gave some apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. So it's apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Look, without taking my socks on, five. Right? I got it. Didn't count that high. So those are the fivefold ministry gifts. And, you know, maybe we've heard of these gifts before. Obviously, we've experienced them and sat under some of them. I want to take the time to clarify the function and the application of each gift. So the chronology here in the text dictates that first we look at the spiritual gift of being an apostle. If you're taking notes tonight, I want you to write down the word apostle. Now, the office of the apostle seems to be different than the apostolic gift. I believe that the apostolic gift is functioning in the body of Christ now. But to be an apostle was something that, because of the, uh, what the Bible says it takes to be a, an apostle, when the last apostle died, th- there were no more apostles appointed. Understand this? We have 12 apostles. We're going to talk about this in a minute. But we have an apostolic gift that still functions in the body of Christ. Let me clear this up for you. There's a lot of misinformation on this gift of being an apostle, and I I want you to understand it before we leave tonight. The office of the apostle had with it the requirement that the person who was an apostle, first of all, had to be called by Jesus. You couldn't appoint yourself as apostle. You, You had to have seen Jesus and been an eyewitness to the resurrection. Now, I don't know who the oldest person is here tonight, but was anybody there when they crucified the Lord? No. So Acts 1, 21 through 26, there again, take notes, follow up on this, read this, understand what the word says. To be an apostle, you had to be handpicked by Jesus and you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. Jesus handpicked his apostles and they testified of his resurrection as eyewitnesses. Understand, these guys that wrote the scriptures and the epistles and all this, for the most part, most of them were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. 
And the Bible says to be an apostle, you have to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. Now, here are the 12 apostles. You have Peter, Andrew, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Jude, Simon, and Judas Iscariot. Okay, one of those names doesn't belong there because we know what happened with Judas. Judas Iscariot, there were other Judases in the Bible. There's other Judases in Scripture. You know, Judas Iscariot is the one who betrayed him. Could you imagine if that was your last name and you lived in Israel, Iscariot? Probably change it. I'd make it Italian, Iscarononi. Judas was one of the 12, but he betrayed Jesus, and he killed himself, and so he vacated his office. Now there's 11 apostles left. These guys uh, were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. In Acts 1.26, the remaining 11 tried to fill Judas's spot. This is important. They, uh, they got two candidates, and they cast lots. They basically drew straws, and the lot fell on Matthias. So the 11 immediately tried to fill the last spot with someone who was there and had seen the resurrection, and they pretty much rolled the dice, cast lots, drew straws, and they picked Matthias. Now, Matthias is not mentioned too much in Scripture. Uh, there are many teachers that believe this was not God's idea. This was man's idea because God had another apostle pre-selected for himself, and his name is the Apostle Paul. Understand this, that the Apostle Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Matthias not mentioned so much. So we see some things here where even in leadership at the early stages of the church, these guys did some things that were their idea and not God's idea, but God's unfazed by it. He, he calls the Apostle Paul himself, reveals himself to him. Now, Paul will talk about the fact that he is an apostle in an abnormal way because he wasn't like the other ones who walked with Jesus, who did. but Jesus did reveal himself to him and call him for a specific specific persons. And if you look at the epistles, Paul definitely called himself an apostle and was recognized as such by Peter, James, and John, and all the rest. So there's some things about apostleship here. The main, the main requirement is that you were there when Jesus walked the earth and when, you know, you were an eyewitness to the resurrection, except for Paul. You can study that and see how uh, God accomplished that. He had a purpose for Paul, uh, and it was you know, obviously Judas disqualified himself and vacated his office. So we have these 12 apostles here. Now, Jesus, Jesus handpicked these guys and they're eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And I want you to understand that's not a group that you and I can just decide to join. I can't say, well, I am now the apostle Rick and I'm just equal to, you know, Peter and, uh, and Paul and I, I'm an apostle. Well, you know, most denominations don't see it that way. It's quiet now. And the truth is the scripture doesn't teach that we can just appoint ourselves apostles. We're going to talk about this a little bit because it's a problem in the body of Christ. You get people, you know, who are untrained, who are self-anointed, self-appointed, didn't go to Bible school, put out a shingle, start a church, and call themselves apostle so-and-so. And I'll tell you what, I want to go choke them unconscious. Because out of order, self-appointed leadership does more damage to the body of Christ, introduces more false doctrine, starts more schisms, and leads more people astray than anything else I can think of. And for the five solid people. So 
You know, most denominations don't believe that there are modern-day apostles, and I agree with that. Some denominations say when the last apostle died, there were no more signs, wonders, and miracles, and I don't agree with that at all. The Bible teaches us that greater things than this shall we do, that, you know, these signs shall follow them that believe, amen. There are still signs, wonders, and miracles, amen. And we've seen them, and, and, and God's done them in this place, and he's done them in our life, and he's done them, he's answered our prayers. But listen, calling yourself an apostle or giving yourself a position that the Bible says, you know, you, know, you don't qualify for, appointing yourself to any kind of spiritual leadership is a problem. And it makes problems in the body of Christ. So some denominations say there's no modern-day apostles. I agree with that. But this, the apostolic spirit is still at work in the church. Now, how does the apostolic spirit manifest itself? Well, it, it does what apostles did. It, it functions as, you know, this apostolic mantle in the body of Christ. It, it functions in those who become leaders of leaders. They pastor pastors. They safeguard sound theology. There are men in the body of Christ that have ministries that overreach and they lead leaders. They pastor pastors. They safeguard sound theology in the body of Christ that when heresies come up and schisms come up and false fire comes up, they point it out. You know, some of us could probably name people who do that. Now, so we call them apostle so-and-so, not unless they saw Jesus resurrected, but they are functioning in an apostolic gift. Understand this. This is why it's mentioned here for the church here. Why? Because the 12 apostles are gone, but the apostolic spirit still works in the church. So the apostolic gift, it safeguards theology. Uh, apostles, people who have the apostolic gift, they plant churches. They lead evangelistic and missionary thrusts, all from a top-tier level of leadership. So understand how this gift functions in the body of Christ. It's the apostolic spirit. It doesn't make us individually as apostles, but it allows us to safeguard the church, safeguard leadership, uh, do evangelism, do missions, and it all comes from a top-tier level of leadership. Now, there are, you look at people who have the apostolic spirit, and they're like generals in the body of Christ. You know, some people call them bishops, some people call them elders, overseers, lead pastors, whatever title they have, if they function in the apostolic giftings there and they have that heart to pastor pastors, to lead leaders, to oversee ministries and evangelistic thrusts, that's the apostolic spirit. And that's how the apostolic gift works in the body of Christ. Does everybody get that? So the way this type of leadership has been implemented through the church throughout history, uh, you know, you had the early church that had the apostles still alive, but then the way leadership structures were um, meted out in the church throughout church history is different by every denomination. Even certain one of the apostles did certain things. There were some churches that were ruled by elder boards and had an appointed pastor, and then there were some who saw the pastor as the chief elder, and he overruled, you know, he over was over everything, and there's, there's different leadership structures in the church. That's what I'm trying to say. And since the Bible doesn't clarify one leadership structure that we have to follow, uh, all of them, to some degree, are legitimate. All right, you're not following me. But understand the apostolic gift. Be very wary of someone who calls themselves an apostle. Read them the, the uh, 
requirements for being an elder, first of all, if they don't meet those requirements, and then ask them how old they are and, and what did Jesus look like when he rose. So, you know, for some of us who have not had good teaching and good theology, uh, some of this is an eye-opener. Because maybe you know some people who call themselves apostles. Mm. Be very careful. When leadership self-anoints and self-appoints itself, it's out of order, and what's going to flow out of it is not going to be healthy. The apostolic gift is expressed in people who do what the apostles did, but none of us should go around calling ourselves apostle so-and-so. Let's bow our heads tonight. Wait till the prophetic gift next week. Father, we just thank you for the word. We thank you for solid teaching, for sound doctrine. Father, we pray that where we've been exposed to things and maybe grew up with cultural things that we're learning are unscriptural, that we'd be teachable, that we'd hear from the Holy Spirit. Father, we would pray for people who uh, are just functioning and, and, and using titles and offices uh, that were not ordained by you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you bring the body of Christ into alignment with the truth. Father, with those who uh, self-anoint and self-appoint and try to do their own thing, start their own thing, Lord God, you call all of your leaders, all your five-fold ministry leaders, you anoint them. As the text says, you gift them with gifts. Help the body of Christ to be healthy and to be in alignment with real uh, those who have the real call of God in their life. Father, and all of, the, all of the voices and false teachers and deceivers that seek to establish their own thing, Father, I pray that you silence their mouths so that the body of Christ can be healthy. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Give him praise.